Dongshan Lianjie's five ranks of the essential and the contingent. Uh, please sit comfortably. Uh, in the last couple of talks, I talked very glancingly about little bits of poems from Dongshan. Um, we talked about the fourth rank in some detail. And now, just to make sure that everything gets mixed up topsy-turvy, I'll take on the first and the last uh, ranks. Um, but I thought that it would be good to read his poem in full as a kind of buffet just before we make our selection. Uh, so it comes in five modes. Mode one, contingent within essential. At the beginning of the third watch before moonrise, don't be surprised if there's meeting without recognition. One still vaguely harbours the elegance of former days. Mode two, the essential within contingent. Having overslept, an old woman encounters the ancient mirror. This is clearly meeting face to face. Only then is it genuine. Don't lose your head by validating shadows. Mode three, arriving within the essential. In nothingness, there is a road apart from the dust. If you don't break the, the taboo on mentioning the emperor's name, you'll surpass the eloquent of previous dynasties' worthies who cut off tongues. Mode four, approaching from the contingent, approaching concurrence. No need to dodge when blades are crossed. The skillful one is like a lotus in the midst of fire. Seemingly, you yourself possess the aspiration to soar to the heavens. Mode five, arriving at concurrence. Who would presume to join their voice with someone who has surpassed? There is and there is not. Everyone longs to leave the mundane stream, yet finally you return to sit in the charcoal heap. Um, that translation is from Ross Bolliter and Peter Wong. So it's a huge and beautiful poem and the other day I gave a little bit of background to the poem. Um, there's no accident that there's so much interest in the poem. Uh, along with Ross's book on the five ranks, there's some amazing work by Dan Tigan Layton um, in his work, Just This Is It, and Charlie Pacorni's Dual Mirror Samadhi Study, which has got a lot about the ranks in it. Um, I'm really grateful to them all for their amazing work and the insight and scholarship that they've offered. Um, personally, I find the rank poems to be like that mesh net that we talked about the other day. Um, every time I return to it, there's something fresh and new. Um, we've had it on our fridge for about 10 years. <laughs> um, so 
to head right in and tackle the divisions that run through the poems, the five modes of the essential and contingent. Is there a way to say it plainly? The essential is dark, empty, unknowable. It's what moves our hands and feet. The contingent is particular, conditioned, impermanent. It is our hands and feet. The other translations, as we said the other day, are the universal and the phenomenal, the one and the many, on and on. But we get the picture, and it's an unsatisfying picture. The whole world is cleaved in two. I'm in here. You're out there. Heaven and earth are split. So as unpalatable as it is on day six of Session, the divisions are worth spending a little bit of time with, even if they leave a bad taste in the mouth. But let's step right in, and like the bees and the flowers, let's get tangled up together. Utterly entangled up. But each is perfectly in their realm. So let's carry it easy. Um, the essential, the whole thing. The contingent, the whole thing. The whole world is contingent. Everything that we can possibly see from horizon to horizon and everything we can't see is all temporary, um, not to be relied upon. Uh, hope as we might that it would be able to be relied upon. Even our vast technological wonders only just offer symbols of protection and permanence. They don't offer that thing. Because of their transience, each thing, even down to our thoughts and our inner worlds and the thoughts and the inner worlds of others, become the sort of thing that we can take special care of. They are minute, they're precious, they're fleeting, and each of them utterly contingent. In the Book of Serenity, there's this wonderful koan from the Guian School, which is the school of friendly equals, um, featuring uh, Guishan and Yangshan, um, and I can't help but quote it here because it gives a sense of how the contingent and the essential are mixed up and infinitely precious. Uh, it's called Guishan's Karmic Consciousness. Guishan asks Yangshan, suppose a person asks you, how about the one who says all sentient beings are in a state of disorderly karmic consciousness and have no base to rely on? How would you treat them? Yang Shan said, if a person appears, I call to them. When they turn their head instantly, I say, what is that? I wait while they hesitate, then say to them, there is not only disorderly karmic consciousness, but there is no base to rely upon. Guishan said, oh, good. <laughs> Then you love 
the oh good, I think it characterises the spirit of that school. School of friendly equals. Um, I, I do think that most people have a sense that there is some kind of strange cleaving in the middle of reality, although it also seems so closed over. Um, for me, and probably for a lot of people, there is a sense of estrangement. It's, that sense of estrangement was probably our first koan, whether we knew it or not. The first real question that dogged us um, relentlessly. Um, when I was a kid, like a little kid, I thought for sure there would be this one day that I would be pulled aside by the adults. Finally, yeah, okay, you've done your dues. The meaning of life is this. The reason we're here is this. The purpose of it all is this. Now you can get on and be one of us. <laughs> but they, they didn't. <laughs> I guess I should be grateful. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I, I, I was pretty haunted by this overwhelming sense that I was missing out on something truly and deeply vital. Um, and I, as I grow up, I got the sense that um, most of us, at least the us's that I got in contact with, were stumbling along completely in the dark. Um, I think you could say that I sensed the reality of the essential while simultaneously feeling that there was nothing but contingent. There are probably hundreds of other words for that feeling, but estrangement, a glimmering recognition, a dark night being lost, not knowing what's what, um, but whatever the case, to say that it bothered me was a real understatement. Um, Dongshan's first verse goes, at the beginning of the third watch before moonrise, don't be surprised if there is meeting without recognition. One still vaguely harbours the elegance of former days. In Dongshan's poem, we have this moment which is before moonrise, and I think you could probably read that as before awakening. And the situation he portrays regarding our relationship to awakening was the same as the one Shakyamuni pronounced when he first was seen all the way through by the morning star. He said, wonder of wonders, I now know that I and all beings are from the beginning the Tathagata. Dongshan says, don't be surprised if there's meeting without recognition. Why don't we recognise it? Shakyamuni says, it's just our delusions and attachments that stop us from seeing it. With delusions and throughout delusions, 
the undeniable gift of being a human is that we are already complete, all the way up and down. We always meet it, even if we don't recognise it. So in those times of grace, when we blunder in sideways, dressed wrongly, ill-mannered, unprepared, there's that moment where we're just walking or talking or looking or singing, solo or whatever. All of a sudden, as Jane Taylor says, the fairies come in and take all of the labels off the world. I think that we can possibly get a bit precious about these moments of grace as Zen people, but I think that glancing and sparking flints off infinity is what humans just naturally do all the time. And we shouldn't be surprised if there is meeting without recognition all over the place. I think that the meeting without recognition is really interesting. I think we can assume that it's meeting one's original face or one's true nature. And I do get the feeling that that meeting is going on all the time through our whole species. I think moments of grace pepper everybody's life, whether they're a Zen student or not. And I think that they slowly accrue to form a kind of orientation towards a bigger and deeper life. Like weights, they kind of accumulate and form a ballast that helps us keep an even keel. And we always meet without recognition, but what is it to meet with recognition? And I think that's where the power of the practice and the power of the way really comes into its own. It's okay to blunder in and to get some, some sort of grace and then blunder out again, saying, oh, that was nice, or, or whatever, but it's a whole other order to say, what was that? What is this? Why is this like this now? And that's the question of orientation. So as well as in the ranks in his record, Dongshan has a kind of accompanying series of more prosaic question and answer exchanges with a monk um, in his work, The Cycle of Merit. Um, that work forms a kind of lens through which to examine his ranks and it's really interesting in terms of this idea of recognition. Um, sometimes recognition and orientation is fast, sometimes it's slow. Some people just hear the glint of a sutra and they're like pointer dogs. Um, Huai Neng was most um, like that. He, he was completely oriented. Um, just overhearing one line from the Diamond Sutra from outside of his window. Dwell nowhere and bring forth that mind. So from the 
cycle of merit, a monk asked Dongshan, what is orientation? Dongshan replied, when eating a meal, what is it? And he also said, to benefit from practice, one must forget about getting full and neither should there be hunger when fasting. So to orient oneself, there's got to be a north star somewhere. Um, I think one of the dangers for us tragic religious types is that we go off chasing north stars everywhere. Um, Zen, Wicca, herbs, medicines, ideology. That's why being able to discern, I think, a genuine sense of the sacred is good. So when the monk asks about orientation, Dongshan offers, when eating a meal, what is it? Correctly oriented. So the second arrow, so to speak, Dongshan offers to benefit from practice, one must forget about getting full and neither should there be hunger when fasting. So that's like falling right through the meal. Dongshan offers orientation to a place where there is nothing but destination. Dongshan also offered this gatha for the first of the five positions. Sage rulers have always modelled themselves on Emperor Yao, treating others with propriety. You bend your dragon waist. At times, passing through the thick of the bustling market, you find it civilised throughout and the August dynasty celebrated. Yao was the famous, was a famous Chinese emperor of old who was well known for his immense power but his subtle and gentle deference. This is the bending the dragon waist. Um, I think that there's something about finding the way in there which is a bit like where you yourself run out of your own steam. I remember meeting Ross Bolliter for the first time and in that meeting there was something like, yeah, okay, I should shut up for a bit and listen. <laughs> <laughs> and then listening opens up. At times, through the thick of the bustling market, you find it civilised throughout and the August dynasty celebrated. So we see the market explode into colour. We see the fruits and the sellers called out, call out, discarded cabbage leaves and boxes higgledy-piggledy stacked in the stalls. Civilised throughout. There's also a wonderful little koan by Nyogen Senzaki called Party, goes like this. Uh, when you're at a party that is very loud and distracting, just close your eyes and you'll find your treasure is right there. At such a time, what is your treasure? 
close your eyes and your treasure is right there. Open your eyes and your treasure is right there. We don't need... We use the world to orient ourselves to the world. We don't need to head off in any kind of direction. We just use the world as we find it. Dongshan's ranks poem has the line, one still vaguely harbours the elegance of former days. And again, I just can't help thinking of Downton Abbey. <laughs> um, and, and it offers a kind of sentimental passing of the, an era. But what era has passed? When you pass through this barrier, you will not only interview Jiaojong intimately, you'll walk hand in hand with all the ancestral teachers in the successive generations of our lineage. The hair of your eyebrows entangled with theirs, seeing with the same eyes, hearing with the same ears. What is harbouring the elegance of former days? So we'll skip to the fifth mode, arriving at concurrence. And in terms of the ranks, this is the last one. Um, the ranks are cyclic. Um, so I think it's fair to take the leap forward or backward. Um, who would presume to join their voice with somebody who has surpassed there is and there is not? Everyone longs to leave the mundane stream, yet finally you sit to return, or you return to sit in the charcoal heap. In terms of the essential and the contingent, the arriving at concurrence sounds good. It's got a homecoming ring to it. It's a kind of, ah, oh, finally. But... The matters that are handled by the big text, they both arrive together through all of the ranks. All of the ranks say, ah, oh, finally. The verse has a question in it. It says, who would presume to join their voice with someone who has surpassed there is and there is not. It reminds me a little bit of um, Wu Men's comment on case one of the Wu Men Quan. With a bit of has or has not, body is lost, life is lost. The challenge, who would presume to join their voice with someone to, who has surpassed there is and there is not? I think it's probably good to not be coy about it. I think your answer should always be, I would, and then you can fall flat on your face. It, that's deeply embarrassing and that's fine. <laughs> the question then becomes, 
how do you surpass there is and there is not? Before we look at the final beautiful line, as a bit of a prelude, I'll tell of Guishan's enlightenment with his teacher, Pai Chang. Once, while Ling Yao was acting, which was Guishan's name before he became named for his mountain, um, once while Ling Yao was acting as attendant to Pai Chang, Pai Chang asked him, Who's there? Ling Yao said, Me. Pai Chang then said to him, Stick a poker in the fire and see if there's any fire left in it. Ling Yao did so and said, There's no fire left. Pai Chang then took the poker himself and sticking it deep into the stove, pulled out some hot embers. Showing them to Ling Yao, he said, You said that there was no fire left, but what about this? Upon hearing these words, Guishan experienced great enlightenment. He bowed and made his realisation known to Bai Chang. What an image that scene paints. Cold, ashen, right at the beginning of an early morning. Maybe there's a quiet intimacy of just those two, um, probably like Dokusan on a cold morning at Mount Helena. It reminds me of what I'm sure everybody, almost everybody has experienced, and I think it's a bit like an Australian tradition, and I hope it's almost a ritual, where early in the morning on a long camping trip, the morning people emerge from their tents and in the bleary silence they all sort of wander towards last night's fire <laughs> and start poking it with sticks looking for something live to start the whole fresh day with <laughs> and so finally we get to the ash itself um, Dongshan's line is so timeless and beautiful that I don't really want to touch it or disturb it. Everyone longs to live to <laughs> everyone longs to leave the mundane stream, yet finally you return to sit in the charcoal heap. We're all wearing black, sitting like lumps of coal. Why do we put on these black clothes? Where is the fire? We darken and we darken again. <laughs>